welcome to the State of State. I'm your host, MC, here at WKNC Raleigh. Introduced last week, the State of State is a new public affairs show aimed at creating a better sense of community here at NC State, and it operates off of listeners' ideas just like you. So if you know of anything or anyone on campus worth sharing, please email your ideas to stateofstate at wknc.org. Tonight's show features a linguistics program here at State. Did you know that you have one of the best linguistics programs in the nation? Do you even know what sociolinguistics even means? For these folks, talk isn't so cheap. I sat down with William C. Friday, Distinguished Professor of English, Walt Wolfram, also the author of four books, a handful of articles, and, well, he's kind of a big deal. So Walt and I talked about his beginnings in linguistics. Well, as a, as a child, I grew up bilingual in German. My, my parents were German immigrants, and I grew up right after World War II. So uh, it was a very sensitive area time in terms of language, and I was sensitive to the fact that I spoke German, and people hated the German language because it represented the German people. And so that was the first sensitivity to language. So uh, my parents didn't speak English very well. Uh, I tried not to speak German and speak English, but I, of course, had to figure out what English I was going to select. So I chose a neighborhood English. And it turned out to be, since I grew up in North Philadelphia, it turned out to be somewhat stigmatized. Uh, I learned that. But uh, And then when I went to college, I learned that my English was stigmatized and I had to speak standard English. But what it did in the process is it made me very sensitive to language differences, how they reflect culture, how they reflect uh, social dominance and subordination and all of the good social things that uh, are embodied in language. What makes North Carolina a unique and or desired location to study linguistics? I would say in terms of uh, different states, it's as varied as any because you have dialects that range from uh, the mountains, which has distinct dialects, to the coast, which has the barrier islands, you know, Ocracoke and Harker's Island and so forth, the unique dialect areas. And in between, you have a number of ethnic varieties, which range from older African-American English because of their, its roots in the rural south, Lumbee English, which is a distinctive Native American variety, and now you have emerging Latino varieties and so forth. So, uh, of course, you also have Cherokee and the Spanish language, and so you have uh, a number of different varieties of English. Because, it, because North Carolina has different ecologies, and different environments and so forth. It's just a very rich area. You know, I, I would say, uh, you know, it's hard to say which state has the most language variation in terms of English, but certainly I can't think of a state that has more variation than North Carolina. Well, to a large extent, the linguistic program here uh, studies the varieties of North Carolina. I mean, we extend beyond North Carolina. We've done studies in the Bahamas. We've done studies in the world's most isolated island, Tristan da Cunha. Uh, that's in the South uh, South Atlantic. And uh, I can tell you that whole story. That's another story. Uh, but anyhow, so we study, I started out doing studies of the Outer Banks 
And then we've uh, done studies of Appalachian English and Lumbee English. And so we've, we've basically, we, we, our method is to send out graduate students, do what we refer to as social linguistic interviews, that is interview people uh, for about an hour, talk to them about their life, childhood games, and so forth. And that gives us a picture into the language of the area. Then we talk to older people who give us a picture of what the older language is like, the younger people who give us an idea of what the current language is like. And so we can see language change over time as well. So we've done about 2,000 interviews in the last 16 years um, and have been supported by the National Science Foundation by... National Endowment for the Humanities, and so our students uh, get to do lots of what we refer to as field-initiated research, where we go into communities and spend some time there and interview the uh, community members, and and that, that forms the basis of our linguistic study. Do you speak to people about their history so that you can hear how they speak, or do you ask about history in order to find out why they speak how they do? It's both, actually. It, uh, in part, uh, we're social linguists, and so we can we can take any kind of conversation and we can analyze it. We can we have computer programs that do analysis of vowels and so forth. So we can do fairly sophisticated analysis. All we need is people talking. By the same token, uh, people like to talk about things that are of interest to them, and so that also provides social background that we can then look at as we correlate uh, linguistic differences with social differences. We get we get attitudes about the world, attitudes about society, about other groups, about their own group and so forth. And that and that informs us as to sort of their social their social construction of the community and so forth. And we use that to analyze uh, the communities that we, that we, uh, we look at. So we do mostly community-based studies. So we go into a place like Ocracoke or Harker's Island or Princeville, which is the oldest uh, town established by blacks in the United States. Uh, or, for example, uh, and we go into Texana, which is the largest African-American community about 150 in the Smoky Mountains. So we, so we, we go into communities, uh, we interview the residents, and then we analyze the data that we get from our interviews. After going and collecting this data from field research, what do you do with all this information? Oh, we have all kinds of theoretical questions that we look at. You know, how does language change? Uh, how does ethnicity? How does gender change over time, gender differences in language? So we have all of these compelling questions, theoretically. But part of our program is geared towards giving back to the community. So we aren't, while we do a lot of basic research and give a lot of papers that six people read because they're interested in it and they're filled with academic jargon, the other side of our program that is very unique, and there isn't a university in the country that does this, is we spend a lot of time giving back to the community. So, for example, we write popular books, we do popular dictionaries, we do documentaries for TV, for local communities, we do museum exhibits. So we do lots of things 
in collaboration with the community to help them celebrate their linguistic heritage. So one of the first questions we do when we go into community is ask them, how can we help you in all of this data that we collect for our purposes? So it, it develops a nice... Uh, it develops a nice relationships with these communities. You've mentioned Ocracoke a couple of times. So what all is being done in Ocracoke right now? Or what have you done in the past? First of all, let me say that we've done uh, fairly fairly detailed studies of Ocracoke and how the language is changing and, and how the dialect of Ocracoke has become what we refer to as an endangered dialect where it's receding and fewer and fewer people are speaking it. And so that, in a sense, it's like an endangered language that the, the traditional brogue or dialect is fading out. Okay, so in addition to that, here's what we do. We do documentaries for the community on their dialect. So, for example, if you were to go to the Ocracoke Preservation Society, you would find a room that they call the, the dialect room where we have posters, where we have a documentary running on the loop all day there. And we've also done CDs called Ocracoke Speaks, where we collect the stories of people and then put them out on a CD. Uh, we have a new documentary that will just be coming out on UNCTV called The Carolina Brogue, which is not only about Ocracoke, but other dialects. So, so these are the things that we have done to uh, to celebrate Ocracoke's uh, rich linguistic heritage. What's the most interesting story someone has told you? <laughs> uh, the drunk pig. <laughs> uh, well, that's a, that, that's a story uh, in one of the hurricanes. Uh, a, a pig. Everything was upset, and some some of the moonshine the, had gotten into the pig's trough. And so one of the pigs drank all of this alcohol and got drunk. <laughs> and so it was swimming and walking around the yard erratically like a drunken pig. <laughs> but uh, we, we, get lots of, we get lots of stories, uh, some more interesting than others. Uh, one thing about older people, uh, no, no disrespect meant... <laughs> They can talk for hours about things that seem to be interesting to them and that may or may not be interesting to you. We then got to talking about what the linguistics program here at NC State studies. I asked Walt about the history of our linguistics program. Well, there was no linguistics program. Uh, we now have, a, on an undergraduate level, we have a linguistics minor. Uh, we teach uh, the, introduc the introductory course in linguistics, uh, English uh, Linguistics 210, is actu actually meets a social science requirement. So we get about 60 students every semester in that. Uh, and then on the graduate level, we just started, uh, you know, about 15 years ago, we started a master's program. And now we're currently... We're, we're currently submitting a proposal for a Ph.D. program, which we hope will be up in a year or two. We have about uh, anywhere from uh, 10 to 15 students who are active and do the research on a graduate level. We also have collaborative relationships with Duke and Chapel Hill so that students get their Ph.D. 
in a cooperative program with Duke and do a lot of their research and their studies here. So uh, we're very ecumenical. We're not, uh, whereas we think we have one of the finest social linguistics programs in the country, uh, we're willing to share it with Chapel Hill and Duke. (laughs) I had heard about some kind of involvement in the public education system. Could you speak a little to that? Yeah, well, one of the things that we... uh, let me tell you about a couple of other things that we do in terms of public outreach, okay? One of the things that we're currently working on is an eighth-grade curriculum in the social studies program of public schools. So, for example, uh, we've developed a curriculum for social studies in the public schools in North Carolina. Uh, in fourth and eighth grade, every student in North Carolina studies the history of North Carolina. We've developed a 430-minute curriculum. I think that's what it is. That is uh, a week-long 90-minute session in which we teach them about language and dialect in North Carolina. So, for example, kids get to to listen and know words from different uh, regions that reflect those regions, know about the pronunciation and the grammatical differences in different regions and so forth. So it's, so it's a program that meets the objectives of the social studies curriculum in North Carolina and has lots of video, has lots of audio, and kids learn about language and dialects as part of learning about the history of North Carolina. Since most programs are uh, sort of relatively local in terms of counties and then states and so forth. Uh, Our goal is for every student in North Carolina to learn about the dialects of North Carolina as a part of studying the history of North Carolina. Um, the, The program, the curriculum that we've developed here is a model for other states. Uh, unfortunately, other states don't have the rich resources that we have in terms of, you know, we've had uh, six TV programs on dialects in North Carolina that have aired on everything from um, statewide UNC TV to, to national PBS and so forth. And so other states don't have as many resources, but uh, certainly North Carolina and this program is a model for the rest of the United States and so states like California and Virginia and New York and so forth are actually following some of this model to the extent that it's possible for them oh yeah we're cool became very clear when I was interviewing Walt that he didn't take himself too seriously and that he really had a passion for language so what are you working on currently one of the things that we're currently doing is we're doing a study of uh, Latino English as it's developing in, uh, in North Carolina. So, for example, some of our students have done uh, interviews in Durham. Others have done interviews in uh, Hickory. And so we can see, for example, what dialects influence the developing English of Latinos. So, for example, we find that in many cases... Uh, in in Durham, for example, kids are using African American English as their model, so they sound more black. Whereas in other areas like Siler City and so forth, they they follow more of a Southern model, uh, and it also depends on how they acclimate 
to the culture of the United States, you know, what they think is in, important and so forth. So, and, and what you see is the kinds of choices that kids make, you know. So, for example, we have a, we have a tape example of a sister and a brother. And all we do at the beginning of the interview is ask them to count to 1 to 10. Okay, and so the girl says 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And her brother says, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nineteen. And and so you see the sister and the brother, you know, making sort of quite different choices. And then you find out, okay, so she's oriented towards school and he's oriented towards his uh, athletic cohorts and so forth. And so what you see is you see that the students are uh, are really making choices about what groups they want to belong to and using the language to leverage their uh, partnership in those groups. See, that's really interesting because they grew up in the same house, so... Well, it's sort of like, as you, as you know, I mean, when you think about it, it's not all that radically different from what we see in other homes. So, for example, uh, you know, there are six kids in my family of origin, and my oldest sister, I'm the youngest, my oldest sister sounds radically different from me. Well, why does she sound so different? If we came up in the same home with the same German parents, lived in the same neighborhood, went to the same schools, you know, well, she's, she made some choices in terms of who she associated with, how she wanted to present herself uh, as compared to me. So, uh, and this happens in lots of different families. Do you think your personal speech pattern has been altered because you study linguistics? Yes and no. I mean, it's uh, it's difficult for me, being sensitive to language, not to mimic different dialects that I study. But I have to be careful about that because sometimes people view that as mockery. <laughs> and so even though it's tempting for me to sort of say back what I hear from speakers – you have to be careful about the social implications of that. So, so for example, I'm from Philadelphia originally, and so I pronounce coffee the way somebody from Philadelphia would pronounce it. Well, when I go into a Global Village or one of the local coffee spots and I ask for, you know, a large coffee, constantly the server will say, oh, coffee? And they're kind of mocking me. And so we have to, I have to be careful because when I hear somebody say, Hoy toyed, I may want to mimic that just because it's kind of cool and I want to mimic it. But in reality, you have to be careful, especially where where some of these dialects are often mocked. So, for example, a white person trying to use African-American English often has a connotation of mockery and so forth. So uh, you have to be careful about how what you adapt and how you use it and in what situation. In raising dialectical awareness, do you think that you will create a melting pot effect? Will everyone essentially begin to talk the same? What we're trying to do in our program is uh, we're not trying to uh, sort of undermine the sovereignty of standard English. You know, we, we realize that standard English is good for all of the good things that, uh, you know, you do to sort of advance in mainstream society. Uh, what we're trying to get people to do is to understand that dialects are an important part of where you come from and your heritage and the culture it represents. And that it's not a function and a representation of sort of lack of education, stupidity, 
and so forth. And, and you know, and, and the, the thing is, language is a lot like other kinds of sort of deep-seated primitive belief systems like religion, attitudes about morality, sex, and so forth. So that uh, people have very strong attitudes about language. And, and one of the things that we've found is that the, the prejudices are about language are pretty resistant to, uh, I mean, in part because people don't educate about them, but they're pretty resistant to some of the uh, strides of uh, egalitarianism that have affected other areas. So, for example, you know, if you go in for a job interview and somebody says, no, you can't get the job because you're a certain age or you're the wrong sex or something like that or you're the wrong color, they would immediately be in court. But if somebody says, you don't get the job because you don't talk right, that just makes people feel bad about themselves. But it may not have anything to do with their competence in performing the job, you know. So uh, so that's a simple matter of what we refer to as linguistic profiling and language prejudice. And so one of our goals in our awareness program in, is to get people to understand that these dialect differences are reflective of cultural legacy and not inferiority. To view, to view these differences as the legitimate cultural differences like any other cultural differences. You're listening to The State of State on WKNC. To hear this program again and subscribe to the podcast, go to wknc.org backslash state of state. Is language use a choice? Uh, a complex matter in terms of the choices that people make about their language, because in part, in part, they're just sort of a product of socialization. But there are also choices. So, for example, one of the things that we've noticed is that while lots of Ocockers, as they call themselves, that is native Ocococers, people who've been there for several generations or more, whereas we see that lots of them sort of uh, have their dialect eroding, there's a core of men, middle-class men, who are sort of resistant to mainstream values. They define themselves as fishers. They would say fishermen because only college people talk about fishers. But anyhow, uh, so so they would see that as sort of holding on to that traditional culture. That's something they want to do. And their dialect or their brogue, as they refer to it, is a lot stronger than other people on the island. And that one is a choice that they make. So, for example, that includes... Um, the first college graduates of the island who've gone back and have gone back to the ways of the water and simply speak in a way that reflects their culture as opposed to the standard English that they learned when they went to college at NC State or ECU or one of the other colleges that they went to, universities. Obviously, these men made the decision to identify with a group. Who or what pushes language to sound as it does? Well, uh, kids first learn their language from you know their their parents, and then and and then when they interact with their peers, they make choices about the language. The fact of the matter is that uh, you know I, I hate to insult parents, 
but kids don't end up speaking like their parents. So, for example, uh, if you're a parent who who moves from Philadelphia to North Carolina and your kids grow up here, they're not going to sound like Philadelphians. They're going to sound like North Carolinians. All right. So, and what happens in the in the course is is kids groups their personal presentation, how they want to view themselves. Uh, these become important to them. And, and actually, one of the things that we found is that while some isolated and um, sort of remote varieties of English, like Outer Banks and like Mountain Speech and so forth, are actually dissipating, there are other varieties that are becoming stronger. So, for example, the difference between white and black America in, in speech is actually becoming greater. It's not converging. So that if you look at African-American English 100 years ago and you look at it today, it's actually more distinct from benchmark white varieties than it was 100 years ago. And so we have a divergence. And we did one study in Hyde County down on the coast in which we looked at different generations of African-Americans. And the older African-Americans sounded no different from the cohort whites. The younger, the teenagers and the young African-Americans sounded more like urban African-Americans. And so, and interestingly enough, the, the time of the greatest divergence took place when the, right after integration took place. So you would think, well, wouldn't integration have the effect of making the kids sound more alike? No, as a matter of fact, the fact that the schools were integrated actually made the kids diverge in terms of their awareness of speech and how different and, and African-American kids didn't want to sound white. And so, so we have divergence rather than convergence. So language is pretty complex, and, uh, but it, by the same token, it's pretty meaningful in terms of what it says about social relations, society, and so forth. Standard English is changing. Do you think that the more people that immigrate into the U.S. Um, will have a greater impact on our speech? or Standard English is, is fluid, and it's always changing. So uh, what, of what, of course, is uh, a curiosity of, of the English language, if you look at the standard of, say, around World War II, right before World War II, it was more like New York, all right? And then it moved to the Midwest. But if you look at Midwest speech today and how people, for example, oh, Chicago is relatively neutral. Nah, Chicago is very distinct. So, for, for example, in Chicago, they say Chicago, and they say for, for lock, they say lack, and, and so it's become quite distinct. So, so in a sense, this regional or non-regional norm is kind of a moving target. So where is it in the United States that this standard English is spoken? Uh, you know, and we try to get network, uh, we try to get network speech standards, which are as dialect-less as possible. But even then, it's impossible. You know, you can't say the vowel of a word like bought or caught without making some dialect commitment, whether it's bought on the near eastern coast, whether it's bought, like a large, a large part of the Midwest, whether it's bought, like it is in some rural areas of the South and so forth. So it's impossible not to speak some dialect. What are your biggest accomplishments with this department at NC State? There are a couple of accomplishments that we've done here at NC State. Uh, 
One is we've done some groundbreaking studies of the historical development of African-American English by looking at remote areas where whites and African-Americans have been living together for a couple of centuries and looked at how African-American English has developed in the distant past. So uh, so in terms of uh, descriptive linguistics, uh, that's a real breakthrough in terms of uncovering the past of African-American English. We've also done some uh, groundbreaking uh, descriptive studies of how dialects die, you know, just like how languages die. Uh, uh, and that that's a whole topic and and we of uh, of interest and we've and we've done some groundbreaking studies of that okay so we've done these interesting descriptive and theoretical studies but by the same token i would say that the real change that we've made is our public education about dialects so there's no state that has TV programs about language differences. So we have one on the Lumbee Indians. We have one on mountain speech. We have one on Outer Banks. We have one on African-American English. Uh, also, we do museum exhibits. There's no state that does museum exhibits on language. So, for example, in the uh, Museum of the uh, Native American Resource Center in um, in Robinson County, we have an exhibit. We have one on the Outer Banks. So th that's another new area. And then the dialect curriculum, which is the first dialect curriculum anywhere in the United States in terms of uh, education about the state. So, so the public presence of language diversity in North Carolina is about as great as any in the United States. So I, I think uh, I think North Carolina and North Carolina State are setting the bar in terms of uh, understanding dialect diversity. Here in Wake County, we have a place called Cary, uh, C-A-R-Y, which we jokingly call the containment area for relocated Yankees. And if you take a place like Cary, one of the interests, I mean, it's a great site for research, every site. And actually, um, one of my colleagues now is just starting a study of the Raleigh area and what happens. Uh, you know, so, so, for example, one of the intriguing things is, okay, where I live in Cary, uh, there are, uh, you know, about 50 homes and about two natives of North Carolina. All right. Uh, one of them happens to be the richest guy in the neighborhood because he sold us our land. <laughs> and he's got a southern speech to the core. All right. But the interesting thing is what happens to these Yankees who move into neighborhoods like Cary? Like, do they pick up southern speech? And, and what's interesting is they pick up more southern speech than their parents are aware of particularly in terms of their vowels. So, for example, they may pick up a southern pronunciation. They may not pick up the southern pronunciation of time as tam, but they may pick up the pronunciation of a vowel like a, a word like, uh, uh, like Duke. In the north, you say it as Duke. In the south, you say it as Duke. All right? And so, and so they pick up these subtle things that, their parents think, oh, they don't speak Southern at all. And then they take their family from Cary and go to Minnesota or Chicago or New York. And somebody says, boy, your kids sure do sound Southern. And so what happens is it's not sort of these 
it's not these very salient features like double motors like Mike could or uh, – uh, and of course, and of course, just about everybody who comes to the South picks up y'all and a few other features as well. Yeah. So, so what's interesting is the sort of uh, the subtle features of Southern speech that are picked up that make even kids in Cary sound Southern. Their parents may not like it. But that's how they sound. And, and that in itself is kind of interesting because you hear lots of parents say, oh, I don't want my kids sounding Southern. Well, yeah, why not? Is that a prejudice that you have because Southerners uh, talk stupid? You know, what's your prejudice? What is your current project? What are we working on? Actually, what we're working on right now is we're working on um, the development of African-American English over the lifespan. So, for example, uh, We've, we, uh, with the Frank Porter Graham uh, the Development Center in, uh, in Carborough, we've been studying uh, a cohort of 70 African-American kids for 17 years, and we have data on them from birth through age 17. So we're looking at, you know, as they go, as they progress through their life, when do they become more vernacular, when don't they? Does everybody follow the same trajectory? If so, if not, what are the social and school parameters that uh, influence that? And so we're trying to get an idea of how kids change through childhood and adolescence when they become more vernacular and so forth. So that's what we're working on right now. We're also working on Latino English um, and... uh, and we're also working on uh, uh, fading varieties of Outer Banks dialects. So we have lots of stuff going. The way you are describing linguistics sounds like... Well, what we do here at NC State is social linguistics. Uh, linguistics is a broad discipline that ranges from theoretical abstractions of grammars of language theoretically to you know detailed phonetics and and what we do at NC State is social linguistics, where we look at the relationship between language and society. And uh, in English, we have five social linguists. In foreign languages, we have several more. In Spanish, social linguistics. So, so we actually have at NC State the largest cohort of social linguists of of social linguists of any university in the United States. Most linguistics programs, you know, they may have, oh, 15, 15 linguists and one or two are social linguists. But at, at NC State, because of our concentration in social linguistics, uh, which is a good fit for a land-grant institution and community-based research where we go out and, in a sense, uh, sort of engage the communities and so forth. So it's a nice fit for NC State. Because one of the one of the constant questions you get is, what do you do with a linguistics major? Well, with an undergraduate degree, not a whole lot. Uh, with a master's degree, a little more. Most mostly, it's a graduate profession, and you know, and students can go into anything from French um, linguistics, for example. One of our students wants to do voice detection for the FBI, all right? Uh, uh, an, an, another student may do uh, 
uh, speech synthesis. So, for example, you have programs that recognize speech. Can they recognize different dialects of speech? So you have a cell phone. So some of this stuff is very practical. You have a cell phone, right? And you can say a, and you can say a command. <laughs> and the voice recognizer needs to read that. But how tolerant of, is it of your dialect differences? So, there, so there's lots of, you know, uh, we've had people who've worked for Panasonic and places like that in linguistics. Uh, most do research and end up teaching. And while there aren't that many linguistics uh, programs in the United States, maybe 30 to 40, you know, just about every foreign language and English department has a linguist because, you know, students have to take these courses and so forth. And since we do social linguistics, it makes it a bit more interesting than some of the structural linguistics that students find a little tedious at times. Speaking for the students, not for myself. We have a minor here at NC State, no undergrad degree. So what might you suggest students study as an undergrad student? Well, I mean, there are students who major in English, in a foreign language, in communication, in anthropology. Uh, I mean, linguistics is, for the most part, a graduate uh, program rather than an undergraduate. But, but by the same token, you know, if I had my way, uh, linguistics is such an interesting topic, and it's so central to everybody's life. I mean, even now, people are talking about Sarah Palin's dialect, you know, what it sounds like and what it reflects and what it means when she says, you betcha, or, you know, her her Fargo-like style, is it an Alaskan dialect? So people are intrigued by her speech, and you see all these articles, you know. Um, and I, I get calls about uh, how the presidential candidates are using their dialect uh, or their non-dialect in terms of presenting themselves and so forth. So, so it's around us everywhere, you know. And, and my feeling is that everybody ought to know a little about language. It's so central to life. So if nothing more than an introductory course to linguistics and language. You know, it's sort of like breathing. Not that you need a course in breathing. <laughs> we hope not. Yeah, we get converts from other uh, from other uh, disciplines. You know, some of our <laughs> some of our best linguists come from nuclear physics. <laughs> you know, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of technical stuff. Uh, you know, a lot of our analysis now. Yeah is done with various programs that, uh, you know, that measure sound waves and can therefore sort of uh, approximate the position of vowels and so forth. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of technology in current linguistics that wasn't around, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. But it's, so it's a nice fit for uh, a technology-oriented university as well. Linguistics seems like a very quantitative way to look at a very qualitative thing. That's right. You know what they say about linguistics? That it's the most it's the most humanities-oriented of the sciences, and it's the most scientific of the humanities. But there's a nice convergence of the scientific hard sciences and also the humanities, because uh, whether you know about sort of the, um, the structural details of language, it's so, it's so integral to your daily life. I mean, you make assessments every day. 
you go into a store and somebody behind you in line is talking and you make an assessment about where they're from, what sort of background they have, how intelligent they may or may not be, you know, whether it's a man or a woman, you know, and all of those sorts of things are are assessments of people based on language. You can't help it. And that's why language differences are so, so interesting to everybody. We don't have to convince them they're interesting. We just have to say, look, you go out there and you hear these people. And aren't they interesting? And why are they interesting? And what does it say about them and so forth? After speaking with Walt, the first student I found slaving away in front of her computer in a small office on the top floor of the Vortex of Time, a building also known as Tompkins, was this woman. I'm Hannah Askin, and I'm in the sociolinguistics program here. Um, and the, I came here from William & Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, and I did linguistics there. And uh, my advisor there, Ann Charity, steered me to this program in particular because of their focus on engagement and education with sociolinguistics. Um, and so I'm really interested in um, dialects overlapping with educational issues, anything from reading to dialect awareness, um, things like that. I'm getting a master's, um, and I had originally intended to get my PhD, but now that um, I've gotten so into the education side of things, I think I want to do something more practical. So I'm applying right now to teacher certification programs, um, and I'm going to get certified to teach, and then um, I'm... I'm um, ultimately interested in doing something with assessment or curriculum. So what all can be done in assessment? Non-standard dialects. Um, speakers can o often have interferences when they're learning to read and write and things like that. So a speaker, say, of African-American English or Appalachian English, um, who has um, maybe very different pronunciations from the pronunciations that teachers are expecting or standardized tests are expecting, um, kind of have trouble translating that um, into writing or um, even um, assessment with uh, speech disorders and things like that can sometimes um, students can be misassessed for dialect difference um, so they they might just be speaking a non-standard dialect um, instead of actually having a speech disorder so they can be misdiagnosed that way so um, those are some implications for education I let her go back to work Noticing that most everyone else had left the building except for one room, two women were also very intently staring at their computers. Both were swamped with work. I first talked to Mary Kahn, a recent graduate from the linguistics program here. I've heard that a lot of people don't know what the linguistics program does or uh, that it even exists. And I have to be honest, when three years ago I really didn't know about linguistics or uh, that there was a program at state either. What I did know is that I really liked studying language. I was a lit major at Appalachian State University and I studied both English and Spanish and I really loved the books. But the thing that I was really passionate about was how people use language like in their everyday life, not just in a book, but to communicate and to express themselves and to show who they were. And I, I guess living in North Carolina, you get a sense of how important language is for people 
because you run into so many different kinds of language here. So you have Spanish and you have English, but you also have Appalachian English and you have Down East English. I know I went high school in Greenville, North Carolina, and the accent there is totally different than it is up in Appalachia. You can tell where someone is from just by hearing a few sentences out of their mouth. And to me, that was incredibly fascinating, especially people's like emotional reactions to it. So when I found out there was a program at State that looked at those things, I was just ready to sign the line and come on in, which I did. And I've really enjoyed it since. Um, I've gotten to study a lot of different interesting things that I think people pay attention to, but maybe don't even don't normally think of as something to be studied. For example, um, I did a big paper on quotative be like, and what that is, is I know when I'm telling stories, I might want to say something that someone else has said to me or that I said to someone else. So I might say, and my sister was like, the Phillies just won the World Series. And I was like, oh my God. And that's actually a really interesting phenomena because it's actually going on all over the English-speaking globe. So people in Australia use it, people in New Zealand use it, people in Great Britain use it, people in Canada use it, but they all use it a little bit differently. So uh, when I got here, I decided to do a research project on that and uh, discover more about how people in North Carolina use this quotative frame. And what I found was really interesting. Um, for one thing, I found that um, that it, it's very widespread, and uh, people in it doesn't matter if you're white, black, or Hispanic, everybody seems to be using it. But maybe communities use it a little differently from each other. So, for instance, if you're Hispanic, it may be um, what I found in the community I was studying was women tended to use that uh, quotative frame a lot. Um, in the Latino community I was looking at. Um, whereas in African-American communities, women and men used it equally alike. So there wasn't really a gender bias there, um, which I thought was interesting. And we can't really necessarily draw conclusions based on it. But what we see is there's this thing in speech, this, uh, this structure in speech that has become really popular and has spread all over the place. But each community, each little speech enclave, um, takes that up and makes it their own. So even though it's a global phenomena, they make it their own by interpreting who's going to use it, what it's used for, um, and what situations it's used for, things like that. So you can almost think of it as your McDonald's in Germany that sells beer, or your McDonald's in Costa Rica that sells um, gallo pinto. Uh, a national phenomenon. So like, what do you do now? Yeah, I've, I've moved on. Um, and right now I'm in doing a project with Robin Doddsworth, who's a professor here, and we're looking at Raleigh vowel systems to see how Southern Raleigh, Raleigh people sound. So even with all these people coming in from outside, do we still sound Southern or do we sound you know, more level? Do we sound more like Midwesterners? What's going on with our language here? Um, another thing that I'm continuing to do is I'm looking at Latino English in North Carolina uh, because there's a real unique opportunity to see what happens 
when people move in and acquire a uh, language as the first language around an area with such rich dialects, um, are are Latino uh, neighbors going to start saying saying y'all? Uh, will they have fronted O's like the, uh, like we do? So will they say coat like we do, or will they say coat? Um, what kind of English will they learn when they're here? Um, I've done this with, uh, obviously, kids who are in the process of learning English. And there are also a lot of Latinos who are coming in from other areas of the U.S., a lot more than I, I think we realize. Uh, there's a significant portion who come in from New York or L.A. or the Southwest uh, already with a variety of, a variety of English. So what happens when you have them forming a community here with their own distinct dialects? What will they end up sounding like? Will they end up with Southern Latino English? Will they end up sounding Southern? Or will something completely different happen? So that's a really interesting thing to study, I think. After data has been collected, what do you do? I, I think people would be surprised and perhaps find it a little humorous that we, we basically sit in front of a computer with this information and we load this up, uh, these sound files up onto computer screens. And um, we have programs that read the sound waves and create images for us to look at the sound waves. So we're actually visually looking at sound all day long. So I get to see sound and I get to hear sound at the same time. So I get really familiar with this stuff. And um, so we do very detailed work with the sound waves themselves and with the spectral information itself to reach our conclusions and reach our analyses. So we don't just sit there and talk to people and take it home and make random conclusions based on our first impressions. It's really a long process. She was sure to point out, though, what had been emphasized before. But I think more important than that is uh, teaching people about language, teaching people what language does. I think a lot of times, because we are a community, we are a nation that's well-educated, we all go to public schools, we get this idea that standard English is the best English, or that standard languages are the best languages, or even that English is better than other languages. And I feel that linguists have a real opportunity to teach people to think differently about language, to think about language as a part of community and as um, a physical reality that is shaped by so many different factors. And that any kind of speech is really an amazing feature of being human. It's really something that makes us unique and builds our communities and um, so promoting that awareness, teaching people to be tolerant of language diversity I think is the number one thing I see in my future. Remembering that Mary had mentioned a woman named Robin Dodsworth, I thought I'd go ask her a little about the Raleigh research. Well uh, now I am working on a project concerning um, how vowels are pronounced in Raleigh. So um, there's kind of two competing questions to the study. One is um, what's happening with what's called the southern vowel shift. So Walt may have told you about this, but the southern vowel shift basically involves um, the kind of moving around of the vowels in the American English vowel system here in the south, especially in the rural south. Um, so, for example, 
um, there are some vowels that um, are kind of, as we say, like moving, moving up and forward and tensing up. So for example, um, the vowel in the word bet. So in the north, you might pronounce it bet. And, and also in the urban south, you might pronounce it bet. But in a lot of places in the rural south, and also for some speakers in the urban south, you would say it more like um, bet. Or, and you know, I'm not doing that very well because I'm not a native speaker of this dialect, but also the vowel in bit, um, instead of saying it bit, you might say it more like be it. Okay. Um, and so those are two elements of the southern vowel shift. We're just talking about um, the vowels sort of moving around in the mouth relative to where they're, relative to the way that they're pronounced by like Tom Brokaw, you know. Um, so I'm studying that. Um, uh, and just sort of the dynamics of that. Um, one idea that that seems to be finding empirical um, evidence in this study is that um, that the southern shift is receding in the south. So it used to be stronger than it is now. Um, and then I'm also studying what Eric Thomas, who's also here at NC State, has called the African-American shift. And again, here we're talking about vowels doing certain things. And, and we are finding evidence for this, you know, and, and when I say African-American shift, I'm sure Walt talked about this already, but, you know, this is not like a racist classification. It's an empirical one, right? So we're talking about social groups and differences in the ways that they talk. We're not, we're not you know, casting aspersion on some. We're not, we're not saying anyone's either inferior or superior in terms of the way that they talk. You know, it's just an empirical question. How do people talk? So, yeah, so those are two things I'm looking at. What do you see for your future? More research? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I would hope to always do research because it's something that, um, that I think is fun and, you know, exciting. I mean, you, you, you're always doing something new with research, so you never get bored. Um, but I also really enjoy teaching, and I think that teaching has obvious, um, you know, <laughs> teaching in some ways is much more useful to society at large than some of the research that we do here, at least in the short term. You know, in the long term, who knows? I mean, I'm sure, you know, Walt told you all about the dialect curriculum stuff, which, which wouldn't be possible without the, the baseline research, you know, that gets done by linguists. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I'll tell you, I used to work for um, some government agencies in D.C., like, so I wasn't teaching at all. I was just doing this, like, applied research that was then used in various ways, you know, by certain government agencies. And, and you know, in a way, that was satisfying because you could see the immediate application of your research. But also, in a way, you know, down here, um, in a setting like this, you get the chance to, to do what you might call more like pure research. And that's, that can be more satisfying. You know, you can explore whatever it is you want to explore, whether it, whether it's clear what use that will have or not, you know, so, so that's been fun. That is all we have for tonight. Thank you for tuning in to WKNC 88.1 for the state of state. I'm your host MC and a special thanks goes out to all those involved in making this show possible. Remember to send your ideas to stateofstate at wknc.org. Our podcast is also available at wknc.org backslash stateofstate. Remember what we've learned tonight, y'all. Some of us talk different, but that don't make it wrong. Go out and vote tomorrow, November 4th.
Good night.